am uh, delighted to be with you tonight. Great turnout tonight as we continue in our series called Life in the Third Person. And by third person, of course, we're talking about the third person of the Trinity, the Holy Spirit, as we have discussed, often a neglected topic in evangelical churches. When it's not neglected, sometimes it's, it's misunderstood and it's mistaught. So we've sought to understand it. And we have looked at uh, the Holy Spirit, his ministry, the different works that he performs, his personality. And last week we began to discuss the gifts of the Spirit, which I think is appropriate in the Christmas season to discuss gifts and what wondrous, marvelous gifts these are. And we defined them last week in general as innate spiritual desires. They are innate to the believer. Innate spiritual desires and abilities to serve the body of Christ. And uh, they're spiritual gifts, which means they come from the Spirit. That is the origin point of these gifts. And that means that you don't have them unless you have the Spirit in you. So these are gifts that only are possessed by the Christian, by uh, that who has the Spirit. And that means they're not things that you're born with. They're not talents. They're not, they're not learned abilities. You don't work hard to get them. You don't uh, study someone else who has them. And then you, you copy them until you have them. It doesn't work that way. These are gifts. Uh, you, you don't acquire them through any means other than the Spirit apportions them to you. You don't get to choose which ones you get. The Spirit grants according to His will. And they are not for your own benefit or for your own enjoyment. They're for the body. They're for the blessing of others. And we've, we've talked about how every believer has at least one. Nobody gets off the hook and says, well, God didn't give me any gifts. Oh, yes, He did. He gave you at least one gift. Odds are you've got multiple gifts. And we've observed that they're different from the fruit of the Spirit. We did a side-by-side comparison. Fruit of the Spirit and the gifts of the Spirit. We said that the gifts of the Spirit, unlike the fruit of the Spirit, they are not indicative of maturity in the believer. They are, uh, they are innate to you. They are not reflective of your maturity. You manifest the fruit of the Spirit by how mature you are. But the gifts of the Spirit don't reflect your maturity. They are reflective of your identity. And that is what they are all about. They have nothing to do. You can be a very immature Christian and still have a gift. And you can still use that gift. And we went through the major passages that are uh, relating to the various gifts. And we did our very, very best to come up with a somewhat definitive list of spiritual gifts. And we came up with 26 Are there more than that? Well, you could make the case. Are there less than that? You could make that case as well. But that's the number that we came up with. And what we're going to do now is we're going to walk through that list one by one. And we're going to describe three things. We're going to talk about the primary function of each gift. We're going to talk about the desires and abilities associated with that gift. And we're going to note the cautions that one must take as they exercise those gifts. Because although these gifts aren't reflective of your uh, maturity level, how you use them is. And so you can use them as an immature Christian or you can use them inappropriately. And uh, there absolutely are misuses of various spiritual gifts. Often you can tell what a person's gift is by how they misuse that gift. And so hopefully that will become clear as we discuss these one by one. Now, just to remind you, uh, the first few gifts that we listed, as we looked at this passage, take a look at the beginning of Ephesians 4.11. It says, and he gave the apostles 
the prophets, and then it goes on from there. But those first two gifts, apostles and prophets, we said that we categorize those as special gifts, meaning they refer to the first century offices of apostle and prophet. You understand. And so uh, these are individuals that we said last week God had appointed, uh, specially gifted to be the foundation of the church. And we we looked at Ephesians 2.19, which says, So then you are no longer strangers and aliens, but you are fellow citizens with the saints and members of the household of God. What is that? That's the church. When was the church founded? It was founded on Pentecost, there in Acts chapter 2. Who was present to oversee the founding of the church? Why, it was the apostles. It was the twelve. It was Peter and the rest there. And they were, it says in verse 20, the foundation. It says it's built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets, Christ Jesus being the cornerstone. And so the primary role of these apostles and prophets in that day, just to remind you, that included preaching and, and teaching and witnessing and performing signs and wonders uh, to denote their authority granted by God. They were there to reveal truth. They were there to write scripture, what you have in your lap uh, or on your phone in the form of the word of God. That came because of individuals like this that God used. And uh, they were there to make disciples. And it was all to lay a foundation. And there is no longer today anyone that can claim apostolic or prophetic authority. Because these guys were the foundation of the church. How many times does a foundation need to be laid? One time. We're not continuing to lay that foundation. So even though there's a move today to try to reestablish that office of apostle, there are denominations around the world that claim apostolic authority. And if you ever come across anybody in religious circles that says God has given me apostolic authority, prophetic authority, I want you to turn and run, all right? You need to get out of that situation because there's nothing in Scripture that supports a modern-day office of apostle or prophet. So just to establish that, I want to move on and I want to begin to look at the other 24 gifts that we have listed here. We're going to begin to break these down and we're going to put them into categories. And in fact, tonight, all the gifts that we're going to look at fit into the category of what we call speaking gifts. Speaking gifts. And in your notes, the category of speaking gifts includes those that involve verbal communication. Verbal communication. Now, for some of you, that scares the dickens out of you. Verbal communication. But the common trait of all these gifts is that they all have to do with verbal, verbally articulating something. Now, that could be a dicey game for some people. Uh, by the grace of God, since I've been here uh, over the last year, I've not committed nearly the verbal faux pas that I have in the past at other places. I've got some stories I, I, I want to tell you. But it's been attributed to Abraham Lincoln. Some say Mark Twain said this. Uh, it is better to remain silent and be thought a fool than to open your mouth and remove all doubt. <laughs> Have you heard that? That can be true. Uh, there are times I wished I had left my mouth shut. I could just tell you that much. When I was in the eighth grade, I went out for football. I played on the middle school middleweight team. And uh, I remember 
you know, those, in those days, you had to buy the plastic mouthpiece. If you played football, you bought it from the sport, sporting goods store, and you put it in boiling water to kind of soften it up, and then you chomp down on it, and it molded to your teeth. And you guys remember this in football? Suck all the water out of that thing, and then it's, it fits you and only you. And uh, we had to wear the mouthpiece. And when you wore the mouthpiece in football, you couldn't talk so good. And all of your S's became F's. All right? So, for example, if I introduced myself, I'd say, hi, I'm Scott. If I was wearing my mouthpiece, it would sound funny, you know? And I remember one game, we were playing the Crosstown Rival, and they're just trouncing us. I mean, it's embarrassing. They're ahead by several touchdowns, you know, and they're dirty. And, uh, you know, they, they, to add insult to injury, they knocked their quarterback out of the, out of the, you know, like out of bounds. And then there was a late hit on him, and he tripped over the bench, and he broke his leg. And it was a late hit, and they didn't blow a whistle on it. And I was upset, and the other team was laughing at us, and they were laughing at our quarterback, and I was getting incensed. And I was like, okay, we're down by a lot, but we gotta, I got to rally the troops. And so I go over to my team, I'm like, come on, guys. I said, we can beat these suckers. <laughs> these suckers. And I had my mouthpiece in. And the next thing I know, I hear a whistle. And yours truly has been called for unsportsmanlike conduct. And I realized what was happening. I go, no, 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 no. And I'm thinking, my parents are in the audience here. You know, they're in the stands. And so I run over to the ref, and I'm like, whoa, 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 but I didn't, I didn't say that. He goes, son, I heard what you said. I go, no, I, I didn't say that. I said suckers. I, I had my mouthpiece in. He's like, yeah, yeah, right, right. I go, no, I don't talk like that. I don't, I don't say things. Like, my dad's a pastor. You know, I said. <laughs> and uh, it was just an embarrassing. And I got so he didn't buy my story. And then I out of frustration, blurted out a word that really was offensive. And then I was really hosed. But, you know, it is better sometimes to be silent and be thought a fool. And that may be true for many, but there are some, I believe, that are gifted, that the Lord has gifted to open their mouths, and they've got productive things to say. And verbal communications is created by God, and it's used by God. It's valued by God. What if God had remained silent? You can't know someone unless they speak. And the Jews knew that about God, and they waited, and God sent his son, Jesus Christ. And that was literally the voice of God in human form. He spoke that we might know him verbally. And uh, I believe it was C.S. Lewis who said, you know, in his agnostic days, he said, I don't believe that there's a God. If there were a God, why, he would be inscrutable. He would be so high, so lofty, one could not possibly know God. You can't know God any more than Hamlet could know Shakespeare, but then this man of letters, C.S. Lewis, this professor of English, had a thought, well, Hamlet could know Shakespeare if Shakespeare had written himself into the play, and that's exactly what God did through Jesus Christ. He had written himself into our play so as to speak to us, and he spoke through his son. He spoke through his prophets. He spoke through his apostles. And there is a gift today, many gifts in fact, by which we are to speak and accomplish the purposes of God. And while there is no office of apostle or prophet anymore, we don't speak directly for God, speaking is something that he has gifted many to do. And so as we look at these gifts, the first one I want to look at happens to be called apostleship. You say, I thought there were no apostles. Well, not in the same sense. 
But here's what 1 Corinthians 12, 28 says, and God has appointed in the church first apostles. This is not that classic first century office, authoritative office of apostle, but it is the gift of apostleship that continues in a different sense. Nobody's writing scripture today, but there are apostles, small a, who are still doing what the first century apostles did in limited measure. And here's the function of this gift of apostleship today in your notes. It's missions. Missions. Apostolos in the Greek means messenger. And if you know a missionary, almost certainly they have this gift. They take the word of Christ into various places. And here are some, and you've got them pre-printed on your notes. You're welcome, so you don't have to break your hand writing so much tonight. But there are some unique uh, desires and abilities associated with this gift. And uh, some of them include that they can go where the gospel is not preached. That is part of this gifting. Um, Apostles today tend to be very inventive, very adventurous, very creative in how they reach people. They are risk takers. They are bold. They perform difficult tasks to be a missionary. If you know a missionary, you know that they are capable of performing difficult tasks. They reach across culture, uh, cultural barriers to minister. They assimilate culturally while influencing for Christ. Uh, my wife and I just went up to visit my son in Branson, Missouri. There's a couple of there, there's a missionary family there that we support uh, that happens to be on furlough and they are living in Branson. So we got to spend a few days in their home, and they they exemplify this gift quite well. They assimilate culturally. They they do their work in Indonesia, and uh, they are also adept apostles today at motivating others to look beyond their walls. Sometimes we'll have missionaries come up on this platform. Uh, Chris and Laura Miner did this not that long ago to, to cast the vision for the work that they're doing. They motivate people. My wife and I met in a missions organization. We, were, we encountered many uh, incredible, remarkable people with this gift to cast vision, motivate people to get involved. This is sort of what we do. Uh, Cheryl is here. She works with Operation Christmas Child. That's kind of a, a, in the vein of apostleship, to kind of motivate people, to, to reach beyond our walls. Uh, apostles plant churches. They found ministries. All of this has to do with this gifting. And then there are some cautions. All gifts come with some cautions, things to be aware of. If you are an apostle, you want to be cautious not to begin to see yourself in the same vein of apostleship as the likes of Peter and Paul. Those were unique. Those were here for a specific period of time for a very specific purpose. They are now over. That office does not exist. And yet there are people in the world today that want to assume that kind of stature, that kind of authority. And uh, there are some abuses of apostleship. If you go into a foreign culture and you establish yourself authoritatively, people can look up to you and that can get to your head and, and you can take advantage of that. So you want to guard against that. But that is the gift of apostleship. It's, it's that of a missionary, quite frankly. And then there's a gift called evangelism. Evangelism, that noun, uh, evangelist, someone who has this gift, it only appears in the New Testament three times. Uh, there's only one guy mentioned by name that is called an evangelist, and it's Philip. Philip is termed an evangelist in Acts 21. He's one of the seven guys early in the book of Acts that were selected as deacons, the first deacons of the church age. And later, he begins to walk in this evangelist gift. 
And in fact, in Acts 8, you see him. He's, he's basically preaching up in Samaria. There's a spiritual revival that breaks loose. And then God leads him out into the desert where he encounters an Ethiopian eunuch. You know this story. And he shares the gospel with him, makes that plain. This guy gets saved. Philip baptizes him. And so every time you see Philip, he's evangelizing. Here's the function in your notes. It's sharing the gospel. It's sharing the gospel. Euangelistes. Uh, in the Greek, one who brings good news. Uh, the, the word gospel means good news. In the Greek, it's evangelion, good news. And uh, by the way, this is something we're all called to do. We're, none of us get out of that. You say, well, that's not really my gift. I guess I don't have to evangelize. No, no. No, we're all called to share the gospel. That's, that's non-negotiable. It's just that there are some people that are gifted. It is very, very natural for them to do this. Here's some unique desires and abilities to clearly and effectively communicate the gospel of Jesus Christ to others. It's, it's, like, it's like riding a bicycle. They just do it so comfortably. Uh, they will go out of their way to share the truth of Christ. They will look for opportunities. They will overcome the fear of rejection. There are some of us we will share the gospel because we're commanded to, but we will tremble as we do it, okay? These guys overcome that. And girls, I should say. These, uh, with this gift, they engage non-believers in meaningful conversation at the drop of the hat. I know some evangelists so hardcore in this gifting, man, they'll witness to a tree stump. They just are so adept. They will communicate with all types of people. They will seek out relationships with the lost specifically to win them to Christ. And they will sense the Spirit's direction on how to do it. And they will use words. They can articulate the gospel in creative ways, okay? But they will get the gospel right. I think it was attributed to St. Francis of Assisi. Uh, preach the gospel. Use words if necessary. And I think that's a rather uh, catchy little uh, motto. I don't actually know if Francis said that or if that's what he meant, but the implication today often is, you know, all you got to do is live out the, the, the teachings of Christ, see needs and meet them, and that suffices as the gospel. Let me just say that's not the gospel. That's, that's meeting needs, which is a good thing. It might facilitate your sharing of the gospel, but here's the gospel. Paul says, 1 Corinthians 15, 1 through 4, now I would remind you, brothers, of the gospel I preached to you, that Christ died for our sins in accordance with the scriptures, that he was buried, that he was raised on the third day in accordance with the scriptures. And so what is the gospel? The gospel simply is that you are a sinner that Christ died for your sins, just like the Bible said he would. He was buried and he rose again and he conquered sin and death. That is the gospel. And if you're not sharing that, you're not sharing the gospel. Well, if you have that gift, you can do it. And you can do it well. And the gospel is a treasure. We carry a message. That's what apostolos means. Uh, 2 Corinthians 4, 7, we have this treasure in jars of clay that the surpassing power belongs to God and not to us. So we all have this message. We're all to carry this message, but there are some of us who are specifically gifted to do this and to do it with great effect and clarity. And they fulfill the prophet's words in Isaiah 52. He said, how beautiful upon the mountains are the feet of him who brings good news, who publishes peace, who brings good news of happiness. Gospel good news. This is the Old Testament. 
All right? And it's using the same phrase that is translated as gospel. Now, what are the cautions if you've got this gift? What do you need to be aware of? Well, you need to be aware of uh, your propensity, perhaps, to start to see people as numbers. Sometimes if you're a soul winner, you can see people as, well, I got another notch on my Bible, led that one to Christ, and you kind of start to get, it starts to become a little numbers game to you. You got to be careful about that. Uh, You can't take pride in your number of converts and sacrifice discipleship. In the name of evangelism, we're not called by the Great Commission to make converts. We're called to make disciples, you see. Uh, sometimes evangelists can come off a little pushy. And so we get now, there are some people that are going to think you're pushy no matter what you do. They're just offended by the gospel, they're offended by Christ. And you can't help that. But some people are pushy, right? Some people are not very strategic in how they share the gospel. Some people are rather judgmental and uh, they'll hit you on the head with their Bible. Their motivation is good. I remember years ago, we moved to San Diego and it was my birthday and my wife said, I've got a surprise for your birthday. I said, what's that? She said, we're going to a taping of the Dr. Phil show. I said, is this my birthday or your birthday? (laughs) And she said, no, no, you don't understand. It's his very first audience participation show. And they specifically are looking for audience members who are opinionated and who like to talk. That's you. (laughs) And I said, okay. And so we went to this taping of Dr. Phil and they had what they called judgmental people on there. And they had had a a male chauvinist and they had a man hater, this woman who was a man hater. They had a, a kind of a racist person. They had, a, they had a black person that was racist against black people. It was really weird. And they had a street preacher. And this street preacher, they had clips of this person, and they would scream at people as they walked by. And they would be judgmental, and they would condemn them without even knowing them, uh, having a conversation with them. It was literally fire and brimstone. You're going to hell, you know, and all this stuff. And... You know, at the end of the deal, they gave audience members an opportunity to engage. And I thought, well, I could, of all these people, I feel like I could speak to that. And so I spoke, and I spoke as a pastor, because this person had claimed to be relatively sin-free. And I said, I think you're damaging the message of the gospel in your demeanor and your pride. And I said, I think that your motivation is good. You want to see people come to faith, but I think your, your, uh, your effort, your method is askew. And she kind of got into it with me and said, well, now you're judging me. We kind of had this little back and forth. And so that was my little moment and whatever. And the producer came up to me after the taping and said, we really like that exchange. And they said, we're going to do this thing called the Dr. Phil house. And we're going to put these people in a house together, kind of like a big brother situation. <laughs> and we were wondering <laughs> if you would be willing to sit in a room and watch them on closed circuit TV, and we would film you as you watch them talk to each other and interact with each other. I said, okay. And so I ended up being on three episodes of Dr. Phil. <laughs> True story. Isn't that crazy? But that street preacher exemplified what we need to caution against with this gift, is to be, be guarding against your own ego, you see. And you're going to find that arrogance and ego is a frequent thing that we need to take caution against with the use of these various gifts. Now, the gift number three that we're going to look at is called shepherding. 
shepherding. So Ephesians 4, uh, verse 11, he gave the apostles, the prophets, the evangelists, the shepherds and teachers. And there's two phrases there, shepherds, teachers, and they are connected by that word and. And so it's really one gift. Shepherds and teachers is one gift there. And here's the function of this gift of shepherding. In your notes, it's caring for spiritual welfare of others. Spiritual welfare. Uh, the word for shepherd is poimen, also translates as over, overseer. It's paired with didaskalas, which means teachers, which we're going to talk about the teaching gift. So there's another gift of teaching, but it, it plays a role in this gift, which is an oversight gift. It's a shepherding gift. And we also call this the gift of pastoring. All right? If you have this gift, often if you take a test, this will be a category called pastor slash shepherd. But that's the gift being spoken of here. Now, that doesn't mean that if you have this gift, you've got to be a pastor. You are, you are signing up, okay, as a vocation to be, you know, what I am. That's not what this means. You, you can have this gift and still not be vocationally a pastor. In fact, you can have this gift and not be qualified to hold the office of pastor because there are specific qualifications that you read about in 1 Timothy and in Titus and such. But this is a gift I believe that all pastors should have. This gift right here. What is it? Unique desires and abilities associated with it is that you would be able to focus on people's spiritual needs. You've got an interest in that. You care. Uh, you protect those under your care. A good pastor, a good shepherd is going to, to guard the people that are uh, assigned to him, right? Or under his spiritual oversight. You're going to oversee the learning and the growth of those entrusted to you. Uh, you will tend to draw spiritually needy people to yourself. You just will. If you've got this gift, they smell it on you. And they find you. And, that's, and you don't mind. You're like okay with it, you know? Uh, you are able to keep track of... Uh, uh, relatively speaking, don't hold me to this, you're able to keep track of faces, names, and details in people's lives. Now, there's a lot of you, so be gentle with me, okay, as I try uh, in this role. But, but I think you, you do the best you can and you have a desire to, for sure. Uh, you have more concern for others than for self. That is just innate with this gift. Uh, and you invest heavy amounts of time in taking care of others. That's all part of this pastoral gift, whether you're a pastor or not. It's a gift that people have. Here's the cautions. You've got to be careful to involve some other people. Don't try to do it all. You're not going to be able to shepherd the whole world. Shepherds tend to want to do that. You can't. That's why the larger a church gets, uh, the more ideal it is that you have multiple pastors on staff, is to share that load. You also uh, should caution yourself to work on making people accountable. Okay, As a pastor, as a shepherd, when you deal with people, You've got to hold them accountable or they're not going to grow. Uh, you need to be careful not to be too controlling of those entrusted to your care. Some people, in, in seeing you in this role, they might assume that you're there to, to do all the work for them. Uh, they, they might become too reliant on you. They might need you a lot. You might be expected to be available at all times to know all the answers, to be at every life event, to be at every function. In short, if you have this gift, you gotta be able to, to say no sometimes, to protect family time, for example. Uh, you wanna be aware of Satan's attack on your gift. Satan can cause you to get discouraged whenever that load gets too heavy. 
Uh, you might become prideful as your sheep look up to you. That's something you got to guard against. You might develop family problems. There's a lot of pastors that have gotten divorced because they put ministry first. They sacrifice family on the altar of ministry. And you, you don't have to be a vocational pastor for that to happen in your life. I've seen it happen in many, many godly uh, people with this gift. Uh, and so, and one last thing, you might become selfish when it comes to those under your care. You might get a little jealous if people start to get uh, guidance from other shepherds. Got to guard against that. That's the shepherding gift. And then there's another gift, and it's the gift of prophecy. Prophecy. Uh, Romans 12, 6, having gifts that differ according to the grace given to us, let us use them if prophecy in a portion, proportion rather to our faith. And so this does not mean uh, that you are a prophet. This does not mean that you're in the vein of the Old Testament prophets or even the first century church prophets. Um, this is not an office. You are not receiving direct revelation from God. This doesn't mean you have visions of the future. It's, it's just like the gift of apostleship is a post-foundational gift. Uh, this spiritual gift of prophecy follows in the footsteps in the sense of boldness and proclamation because there's there's a couple of uh types of prophecy in your bible there's predictive prophecy which is that you can foretell okay if you're an old testament prophet you know they sometimes they would speak of events that had not yet come to pass and then they would be fulfilled and it would be a mark of their authority uh then there's another type of prophecy called didactic prophecy and that is a foretelling that's a thus says the lord kind of prophetic ministry this is what God has said, you understand. And so today, we don't foretell, because that would be direct, fresh revelation. We don't say that God said thus and such unless it's already part of the record of Scripture. That is the completed revelation of God. And so what is the function of this gift? It's declaring the Word. And so where has God revealed His Word? He's revealed it in Scripture. And so what do you do if you have this gift? You boldly declare that which is scriptural, okay? The unique desires and abilities include boldly proclaiming the word of God. You know what? Every time you watch a pastor, listen to a pastor, and they open the Bible and they proclaim what's in the Bible with confidence, they are walking in this, in this kind of a prophetic ministry. Uh, you can, if you have this gift, you can build up the body by reinforcing truth. You use scripture to do that. You promote the known purposes of God. Why are they known? Because he wrote about them. They're in his word. A prophet tends to see things very plainly, very clearly. Okay, you got this gift, you're rooted in the word. You see things, prophets tend to be very black and white. Things tend to be very simple to prophets. They don't struggle and wrestle with ethical and theological concepts quite as much. They tend to be very resolute. You identify and reveal destructive patterns and habits in people's lives. A prophet has no problem calling out sin for what it is. They're very black and white. They, they like to see sin's power diminish. They take great joy in seeing sin conquered in people's lives. Uh, prophets tend to make quick decisions. They're interested in doing things the right way. They don't want to find their way. They want to do it right the first time. They don't like nuance. They don't like complexity. Uh, they comfort afflicted people by sharing truth. 
because they're well acquainted with the truth. Truth is their default. They default the truth. Now, when you default the truth, you'd be very blunt, typically. Prophets will preach and teach publicly very comfortably. That doesn't mean that they have the gift of teaching. In fact, I always know a prophet who doesn't have the gift of teaching. A prophet who has the gift of teaching is a very powerful thing. A prophet who does not have the gift of teaching can be a little bit scary, <laughs> a little bit intimidating. And that kind of leads into some cautions. What would be some cautions? You could probably imagine some. Uh, other people might find you rather demanding. Other people might find you rather big-headed, rather judgmental, you know, that you enjoy hurting people's feelings. So you're going to have to take care. Don't unnecessarily hurt people's feelings. Can you communicate without doing that is a caution. Uh, some people might assume you have no understanding, no compassion. One of your greatest challenges would be to speak the truth in love. Something that we all need to work on, right? Um, you got to be careful to understand you're not the Holy Spirit. And yet, often you'll try to convict people instead of letting the Holy Spirit convict people. you got to work more. If you're a prophet, you got to work more on being patient, positive, tactful. Satan can attack prophets in their gifting uh, because you might, you might get short-tempered with people. You might write people off who tend to disappoint you. Uh, prophets invent... They invented cancel culture, by the way. Uh, you might have an overemphasis on justice, that so-and-so should you know, pay recompense for their actions and whatnot. Uh, and the devil can make you discouraged when you, when you don't see people snap to it and things like that. And a lot of prophets, because of this uh, harshness, a lot of them fall into the very sin that disgusts them in the first place because they have weak spots and they get blind to them. And so that's, those are some of the misuses there. But that's prophecy. And then we've got teaching. Teaching, which uh, is listed in Ephesians 4.11, which we read. Here's the function. It's, it's quite frankly instruction in the word. Instruction in the word. Didaskalia. Instruction. And as we pointed out, there's a correlation between this gift and shepherding. Uh, and yet, you can be a teacher and not a very good shepherd. A lot of people have the gift of teaching. They don't have the gift of shepherding. Here are the unique desires and abilities. You could communicate truths and doctrines of the Bible clearly. Uh, you enjoy spending time in the Word of God for the purpose of learning and passing it along. Now, you can enjoy spending time in the Word and not have the gift of teaching, but often a teacher will just, they will love nothing more than to be in the Word, but there's an end goal. They want to pass it on. They want to relay it. You enjoy seeing others mature and be strengthened and unified by what you teach. Uh, you're, you're able to make plain what is not immediately clear. When people come, they're like, I don't really understand this. You can see it a little more clearly. Uh, you are a resource to other shepherds in their teaching. I, rem I remember um, uh, on my last uh, church staff, whenever guys would... Uh, be on it. We had a kind of a teen teaching rotation, and so we would get together, and they would look toward certain guys on the team that were adept. They had the gift of teaching, and they would help them polish and fine tune their message. Um, teachers can identify untruth; they can spot a counterfeit a mile away because they know the word and they're, they're, they have this gift. They they have a high view of scripture. I don't know anybody with the gift of teaching that, that likes to debunk the word and, and dismisses the word. Uh, all people with this gift that I know 
have a high view of Scripture. Uh, teachers tend to be very organized in their manner of communication. Um, they're not all over the place, although that's not to say that you can't have different methods of teaching. They tend to offer practical application of doctrinal concepts. It's not just regurgitated information. There's, it, it tends to mean something. It tends to be going somewhere. Some have come to me, they said, Pastor, is this your gift? Uh, and I, I say, I, I believe that this is my gift. They say, have you always known that you've had this gift? No, no. And the reason is, I wasn't exercising this gift for a long time. And that's sort of an important observation about the discovery of gifts. That in order to know what your gift is, you got to try different things out. If you don't know what your gift is, I would just begin to serve in various capacities and make some discoveries and be surrounded by people who observe you and can speak into your life and say, this is what I see. You are gifted in this way. And spirit-filled people can inform other spirit-filled people. But teaching is one that you, you tend to discover it late because, well, it's not usually appropriate to let a novice uh, teach I mean, when I was a whippersnapper, I didn't get a lot of opportunities to teach, and I, I think that was totally appropriate. And so usually teachers don't discover that gift until they get a little more mature in the faith. I would never, um, as a pastor, I would never lay hands on someone too soon. I would never say, hey, new Christian, why don't you get up here and start teaching? Uh, you want them to grow in their faith, grow in their understanding a little bit more. doesn't mean they don't have the gift now. It just means there's a maturity that's going to make that gift really shine, you see. Uh, cautions, be careful that you're not critical of people that differ with you doctrinally. Doesn't mean you can't publicly disagree. Doesn't mean you can't point out what you believe is errant in their teaching. Just means that you need to be civil about it. That's all. Means you need to be loving about it. Not, uh, not treating it in a mocking fashion. Uh, be careful you don't measure spirituality by the amount of Bible knowledge that somebody has. Sometimes teachers can do that. You gotta be willing to listen as well as talk. Okay, teachers can, they can gab at length. And so listening is also a good thing. Uh, you know, uh, don't assume because you got this gift that you, you know where to go right away. Read the directions first, i.e. the word of God. And I would say, be tolerant of those that you're teaching. Be patient with them. They might not catch on so fast. So those are some tendencies that we need to guard against. Now I want to talk about something called the word of knowledge. We're going to get into a couple gifts here that are kind of, they're kind of on the cusp. I put them in the speaking category. You could just as easily put them in another category called sign gifts. Okay? But I think they belong here, and I'll hopefully make that apparent as to why. But the same precaution with this gift called word of knowledge um, it's the same precaution as with the gift of prophecy. There's no new prophecy. Okay, We speak prophetically what has already been prophesied, what has already been revealed. Well, there's no new knowledge either. All revealed knowledge is in Scripture. So this gift is called word of knowledge. Uh, the word word implies it's a speaking gift. There's a word of knowledge. And sometimes people will come up to you and they'll say, I have a word for you. Don't you love it? I love it when people do that. And I got a word from the Lord. Oh, and what does that imply? That means if this is from the Lord, you better obey it. That means whatever's coming out of my mouth for you, you better obey that because that's from the Lord. So what that means is they, they're claiming to speak on behalf of God. Well, what do we call such a person? A prophet, 
an apostle, okay? And I mean in the, in the New Testament sense or first church, early church sense. Uh, and so I want to I wanna change the notion of the word of knowledge because that's a little dicey. First of all, it denies the sufficiency of Scripture, which we don't want to do. Secondly, word of knowledge, it's word, not words. Interesting. So this could be a one-time gift, in which case it would have more in common with the sign gifts that we're going to talk about in a few weeks. But it, it may be that this gift is used in conjunction with some other gifts. It's sort of a mysterious gift. But here's what 1 Corinthians 12, 8 says. For to one is given through the Spirit the utterance of wisdom and another the utterance of knowledge. And I'm, I'm taking word of knowledge before we get to word of wisdom and you'll understand why in a moment. But it's, of, it's according to the same Spirit. So here's the function in your notes. It's to understand and speak forth truth. To understand and speak forth truth. Truth, logos gnosis, word of knowledge. Knowledge, to have knowledge means you have understanding. Understanding. This is not a situation where someone says, God gave me a word, I don't know what it means, but I'm gonna pass it on to you. Well, that's not the same. I'm not saying that doesn't happen, I'm just saying that's not what this is. If you have a word of knowledge, you have understanding as to what that is. If you're speaking knowledge, that necessitates understanding. If I tell you something and I don't know what it means, I'm not speaking forth knowledge, okay? So what this is, this is a unique desire and ability to recall biblical information during situations when it's most needed, okay? You are able to have on recall. God allows you to remember what his word says concerning a given topic in the scripture. And it also means that you are to be adequately prepared to give an answer at all times, which is actually a command of 1 Peter 3.15. In your hearts honor Christ the Lord is holy, always being prepared to make a defense. Always ready to anyone who asks you for a reason for the hope that is in you. I think people who have the gift of the word of knowledge can obey that quite, quite easily because of this gift. They have a handle on truth. Where is truth found? It's found in the scripture, found in the Bible. And so if this is a speaking gift that involves understanding truth with an insight that only comes from revelation and revelation is complete in God's word, then the gift of the word of knowledge is when people understand the deep things of God and the mysteries of his word and are empowered by God to recall that and disseminate that information as needed, at the right time. This is not a lengthy gift. You are not gonna stand and, and pontificate about things for hours on end. This is not a relational thing that happens over time. This is incidental, where God empowers a person with the gift of the word of knowledge to speak regarding biblical information. And you're ready to offer that, and it's gonna encourage and build up and impart teaching to believers at opportune times. And you are also able to communicate effectively as you do that, even if you don't have the gift of teaching. There are people that are not teachers and they're not good speakers, but because they've got this gift, God empowers them to speak biblically at the right moment. It, it's a beautiful thing. If you've ever beheld it, it's an amazing thing. And I, I've, I've encountered this with people before. Here's some cautions. This has got to be the most difficult gift to have and tell people you have it. You know, 
Because why? Because they'll think you're arrogant. Oh, I have the gift of the word of knowledge, you know. So, you know, what, is, what does the Bible say about knowledge? Knowledge what? Puffs up. It says knowledge puffs up, 1 Corinthians 8.1. So just got to be, just got to be cautioned about that, all right? Now, the accompanying gift here is the word of wisdom. Word of wisdom. Same precaution applies as with prophecy and knowledge. There is no new wisdom. Where's wisdom? In the Bible. We always come back to Scripture. Scripture has the final word. So wisdom is mentioned 75 times in the New Testament. 1 Corinthians 12, 8, uh, we already read that. It mentions the word of wisdom first, and then the word of knowledge. Why did I start by talking about word of knowledge? You'll find out in a moment, but here's the function of the word of wisdom. It's to understand and speak concerning the application of truth. The application. You see the difference between the two? This is, that was logos gnosis, word of knowledge. This is logos sophia. Sophia, wisdom. What's the difference between wisdom and knowledge? Well, knowledge is information. So with the other gift, you're recalling biblical information. Wisdom is the correct application of that information. You're applying it correctly. Greek word Sophia means literally the ability to do something. And so this is an implementation rather than mere static info. You understand? So unique abilities and desires... Uh, I've got it on your notes. It's to impart godly wisdom in instances where it's needed. Uh, you've got insight that's not obvious to the average person. You know what to do in a life situation, and you know how to do it. Uh, you know, uh, biblical examples, I think of someone like Solomon, although he's Old Testament, he exemplifies this kind of, of gifting. You know, he was, he's known as the wisest man who ever lived. You think of some of those instances. You know, God just granted him divinely information. Well, this is that, but in, a, in the form of a permanent gifting to select believers. Remarkable. What are the cautions with that? Well, people may assume that you think you know everything, that you always know, know best. And so uh, you don't want to rely on your own. If you've got this gift, if God has, has seen fit to grant you this in select moments, you might assume that you do know best. And so you've got to guard against that. But real wisdom is always found in the word of God. Even someone with this gift is going to check himself against the scripture. And then the final gift we're going to look at, I'll try to get through this as succinctly as I can. This is exhortation. Exhortation. Romans 12, 8, the one who exhorts in his exhortation. The function of, it, of the gift of exhortation is biblical counsel. Biblical counsel. And you know what? You can write off to the side disciple-making Disciple making, because I believe that that is also relevant here. Uh, Paraclesis means encouraging. Encouraging. Some call this the gift of encouragement. I like exhortation because I think that's a biblical word. Uh, but this gift expands well beyond the last two we've talked about. This is way past word of knowledge, word of wisdom stuff. This is ongoing, this is relational. Counseling. Often this is called the gift of counseling. But it's a biblical counseling. There are professional counselors. They've got training. They've got expertise. It can be beneficial in certain ways. But hear me. There's no degree, no title that can guarantee every person is going to get the help that they're looking for. Um, you know, it, it, some professional counselors are, are not, uh, not beneficial. 
And I think that's because of the world that we grow up in. Some are. And I'm not anti-psychology. I'm not anti-counseling. But I think there's a difference between some counseling and this kind of, uh, this kind of ministry enabled by this gift. But this is the unique ability in your notes to develop relationships for the purpose of encouraging people's growth, spiritual growth. If you have this gift, you can counsel with great authority. And by that, I mean you have authority in the word because it's biblical counseling. Uh, you've got a gift to motivate others by encouraging them to pursue a course of action. That's a difference from secular counseling. Secular counseling used to do that. You used to go to a secular counselor and you'd say, this is my problem. they say, here's what you need to do. You know, uh, Today, that's changed. Now it's like the counselor says, well, how are you? Well, I'm, I'm not doing well. Really? Why do you think that is? Well, I don't know. I'm just, I'm just not doing well. Well, how do you feel about that? Well, I, I feel awful. Yeah, you look awful. <laughs> That'll be $200, you know? And that's not all professional counselors today. I understand that. But uh, this gift goes beyond that. Uh, you're able to explain how to apply God's word. You're able to help Christians mature. You're able to listen. Okay? You don't just go straight to counseling. You listen and you assess need. You assess need. And you identify biblical solutions for that need. Uh, you have a, a propensity to spend time one-on-one -on -one with people. You're able to do that. It doesn't drain you as much. You see how scripture practically relates to real life situations. Uh, you rely on logic and wisdom rather than emotion. People who are very emotional don't typically make good biblical counselors. Now, good counsel comes from Romans 15, 4. Whatever was written in former days was written for our instruction. Is the Bible relevant? It is. Counsel means literally to be called alongside. To be called alongside. Um, I believe there's a place for psychology. I do. I'm not anti-psychology. I think, you know, your, your, your brain is an organ. Your, you know, you may need to consult with a professional regarding your lungs and your stomach and your liver and your kidneys and things like that. I think the brain that can benefit from people who are specialists as well. What you want to be careful about is the philosophy and mindset with which they treat you. And so it does require some caution. But I want to give you four ways of counseling that we see in Scripture. Four ways of counseling. Number one, you counsel as a father or as a parent. 1 Thessalonians 2, for you know how like a father with his children, we exhorted each one of you and encouraged you and charged you to walk in a manner worthy of God who calls you into his own kingdom of glory. Paul lived this out. He saw his counseling, his exhortation in almost a parental sense. There was a care taken. Number two, you counsel with patience. 1 Thessalonians 5, we urge you, brothers, admonish the idle, encourage the faint-hearted, help the weak, be patient with them all. Be patient with them. If you're an impatient person, you probably don't have this gift. Uh, when someone comes to you and you're impatient with them, you're not manifesting what the Bible teaches about counseling. Number three, you counsel with teaching. With teaching. 2 Timothy 4, 2, preach the word, be ready, in season and out of season, reprove, rebuke, and exhort with complete patience and teaching. If there's no teaching from the word, it's not biblical counseling. It's not exhortation. You listening is not exhorting. You giving your opinion is not exhorting. You're not teaching out of your own well. You're teaching in accordance with the scripture. And because of that, number four, you counsel with authority. 
authority. Uh, Titus 2.15, declare these things, exhort, rebuke with all authority. Let no one disregard you. Now, I'm not speaking of an office that you are divinely appointed with authority. It's not you or your gift or your office that has authority. What has authority? The Word of God. Biblical teaching, biblical counsel, right? So you can, it's confidence. The, I stand on the Word of God. When you stand on the Word and you interpret it accurately and you relay what is there, that's authoritative. You are patient. You don't back down from truth when Scripture is clear. Cautions. you got to be careful not to interrupt other people as your counsel. Make sure you take time to listen. Sometimes if you've got this gift, you wanna, you're going to want to cut to the chase. Now, I understand some people will do this for hours on end, and you've got to pull a Dr. Laura on them, and you've got to get down to it and say, here's a dealio. Uh, but it behooves you and them to listen. Um, another caution is because you are acquainted with the word and biblical counsel, some might assume that you don't use enough scripture because you're just telling them what to do. And it is based on scripture, but you're not citing scripture. And so you might take caution to show them this is what God's word says so that they know you're not just making this up. You understand? Uh, You want to guard against pride, like with most of these gifts and your motivational abilities. Uh, You don't want anybody to start to see you as being on a pedestal and holding you up. And if you have that kind of influence on your life, you want to guard against manipulating them because of your persuasive abilities with this gift right here. So beware Satan's attack on your gifts. If you are counseling someone and it gets rather programmatic, make sure you don't emphasize the steps and the program more than you focus on the person. Very, very important. And those are the cautions. And those are the eight speaking gifts. And I hope that was informative for you. Um, We're going to continue in our series. Now next Wednesday night we will take a break because... A week from Sunday, we have our Christmas program. Doesn't the stage look great? I think it manages making me all in the Christmas spirit. But we have our Christmas program on the 17th. And so we're going to, is it on the 17th? And we're going to give them an opportunity to rehearse in here next week to prepare for that. But we'll be back in here the following Wednesday and we'll pick it back up. And we're going to look at the next category of serving gifts. And we're going to continue with this. And we will probably take this into January where we'll wrap up this series on life in the third person. Would you bow with me? Heavenly Father, Lord, I just thank you for everybody in this room. I'm so excited for everybody to discover how you've made them, how you've gifted them, and how they might put those gifts to use. What a glorious adventure it is, God, and there's nothing more gratifying than to be walking in that which God has placed you. And we ask your blessing in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen.